Today's scripture is from Luke 9. We're starting at the 28th verse of Luke 9. About eight days after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus predicting his death, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said this to his disciples. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they didn't grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As they were walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service 
in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. You know, for many of us in America, the name Abraham Lincoln is associated with heroic courage and steady resolve in a time of great turmoil in our country. The great emancipator seems to be a fitting title for his accomplishments as in the Civil War. We have the Lincoln Memorial bookending the National Mall with the U.S. Capitol at the other side of it. We have parks and streets and schools and coins with his name and visage on it. In many ways, America reveres Lincoln as a Messiah figure. This week, I had a chance to sit down with Mark Charles, a Native American pastor turned speaker and activist turned presidential candidate in the 2020 election. With one of his rambunctious cats nudging my arm as we had tea around his dining table, uh, he shared about how America has mythologized Lincoln while ignoring some of his words and actions that might reveal him not to be a Messiah figure, but perhaps as a blatant racist and perhaps one of the most genocidal figures in America for his actions towards African Americans and Native Americans. In Mark's eyes, America needs to revisit their conceptions of Abraham Lincoln and how those misconceptions have led to continued support of white supremacy in America, even 160 years after his death. Now, if this is new to you, and perhaps this sounds like a bit of a bombshell, I'm not going to unpack it all here, but you can pick up his book, Unsettling Truths, that he wrote, co-wrote with Soong Chan Ra. And in that book, he's trying to tell the whole truth about Lincoln, rather than just the truths that the victors want to be told. In the Christian scriptures, we're invited into this great story of God's redemption through the promised Messiah to the Jews. And in the Gospels, Luke is trying to show how Jesus is rewriting the narrative of this Jewish Messiah. But he's not trying to do it after the fact. He's trying to do it in real time as with, with his contemporaries as he's in the midst of them. In his teaching and ministry, Jesus breaks down their expectations of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah has come to do for them. As we continue in our Luke sermon series, uh, we're going to turn to chapter 9, as Jeannie read for us this morning. Last week, we kind of went a little bit out of order because we had Anthony Kerr come and speak about the Good Samaritan from a Palestinian perspective from chapter 10. So we're going to go back one step and catch up on past, uh, in chapter 9. And we're going to look at how Jesus might challenge our expectations of what, what a Messiah is and what a Messiah comes to do for us and for the world. Because when we see Jesus as the true Messiah sent by God, this leads to a new perspective, a new timeline, and a new way of following. When we see Jesus as a true Messiah, we we See, have a new perspective, a new timeline, and a new way of following. So as we begin, let me just talk about some of the terms here that were related to Jesus, his name and his title. 
Jesus is the English spelling of the Greek name Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yeshua. All three of these mean Savior or Deliverer. That's Jesus' name. Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Jesus' name and Christ is a title, just like Andrew, the pastor. Jesus, the Christ. Andrew's my name. A pastor is a title I have. So Christ is the English spelling for the Greek word Christos, which means deliverer, anointed one. Or it's the Greek equivalent of, of the Hebrew word Messiah. In the Gospels, there are three titles that are often associated with Jesus. There's Messiah or Christ, depending on which language you're using, Son of Man and Son of God. In this chapter alone, has two of those references. When Jesus is speaking with Peter, he uses Christ, I mean, Peter calls him Christ, the Son of God. And just a verse later, in verse 21, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Later on in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is brought before the council and the elders, all three titles are linked to Jesus, including Son of God. So the Messiah or the Christ is the anointed one, the deliverer, the political leader who would restore the people of God to be the blessing that God promised to Abraham. The Son of Man is another title used by the prophet Daniel to name the one to whom God would give all authority and dominion over all of creation. And the Son of God is the one who would forgive sins. So, in the minds of Jesus' contemporaries, including his disciples, the Jews were waiting for this Messiah, someone who would come and lead them like the heroes of their faith, like King David, like Moses, the one who led the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt in captivity, like the great prophet Elijah. Earlier in chapter 9, as we just mentioned, Peter recognizes that Christ is, uh, Jesus is the Christ of God. But his understanding of Jesus has yet to move from his heart, head into his heart. He still needed a new perspective of who the Messiah was to be, despite naming it correctly. And I wonder if there is a little bit of Peter in all of us. We have the head knowledge, we can name who Jesus is correctly, but we haven't reached that heart knowledge of Jesus that changes our lives. And that leads to this transfiguration scene in verse 28. And there Jesus, we're told, goes up to a mountaintop to pray with his three disciples, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they enter into this fantastic scene. Can you imagine being there? You see someone's face change before your eyes. Clothes flash brilliantly. And the three disciples see that Jesus is talking to these heroes of faith. There's Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about his impending departure. And in the Greek word, it's exodus, his exodus. And they don't understand what he's talking about. And Peter sounds a little confused. And in that moment, he sees the three heroes, uh, three heroes of his faith coming together. And he's like, oh, this is a lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Could this be what my people have been waiting for all of our lives? Let's build a place for them to stay. 
Let's keep them here a little longer. Surely this must be the Messiah. Peter was responding to Jesus and this scene with his expectation of what a Messiah was going to do for him and for his people. The Messiah is going to set them free from these Roman colonizers. The Messiah was going to be a military, a political leader who would lead them to this place of honor. His people would now be the head and not the tail, as the prophet Jeremiah talked about. In Peter's eyes, he was witnessing the beginning of glory, return to Israel. This is what Peter and his people have been expecting from the Messiah all this time. But that's not the way that Jesus would redeem his people. In that moment, a cloud of God's presence descends, and they all hear a voice saying, This is my son chosen. I have chosen him. Listen to him. In that moment, God is reframing Peter's perspective of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah had come to do. Would Peter get it? Do we get it? See, what's critical here is recognizing who Jesus is. Is he the Messiah or is he not? We can't just take him to be a historical figure or a religious teacher and reject his claim to be the unique son of God. You know, often what we do is we take what we want from Jesus based on our values and our concerns rather than take Jesus at his values and his concerns. If Jesus is the son of God, we don't get to pick and choose what we like about him and about what he says. We might be inclined to find fault and we say, well, see this this text, we're not sure if we can trust it because it was written by people and they're using it to advance their priorities and control. And we begin to throw out things that we think don't align with what we believe are important. It shows up when we say things like, well, I have problems with what Paul has to say about this. And we might say, well, it's not really reflective of the Jesus that I have come to understand. We attempt to make Jesus more culturally palatable without doing the work of interpreting and honoring the texts as they have been given to us. And this leads us to treat Jesus maybe as a good teacher, maybe as a prophet, but for sure not God. And that reduces the Christian faith to one system of ethics among many, something that Christianity has never claimed itself to do especially if Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. The question for us is, how do we come to Jesus with our concerns and our values and our priorities and expect Jesus to meet us according to those priorities? We framed a Messiah for us to meet us. And we might rightly see, the scriptures say, Jesus did care for the marginalized and the oppressed, but that wasn't the only thing he did. Jesus did challenge the power holders in his time, but that wasn't the only thing he did. Jesus came to lead and serve humbly, but that's not the only thing he did. Like Peter, we may have a certain understanding of Jesus when we come to him. And like Peter, we might be well-intentioned with our response to Jesus. We want him to fit into our picture of what a Messiah would do for us, 
and for the world. You see, we all have our Messiah figures. We have our Elijahs. We have our Moseses. We have whatever you fill in. And we expect Jesus to do the same thing as, as them, but maybe just a little bit better. But this scene shows us how Jesus, the true Messiah, demands our full attention. He is the Son of the living God. What kind of Messiah do you have in mind when you come to Jesus in Scripture? And how does what he says and does do invite a new perspective of your ideals of a Messiah? I wonder if we all have the courage and integrity to face that with humility. Now, Jesus, the true Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, changes our perspective on the kind of Messiah that we have in mind. And this new perspective leads to a new timeline. See, our longing for a Messiah, like the Jews, you might not call it Messiah, but we have some functional Messiah in our lives, is a longing for comfort and security. That's what the Jewish people were longing for with this political Messiah arriving. When the Messiah was to arrive, their people would return to glory. In their minds, it was the glory of this kingdom, like under King David and Solomon, when Israel was this dominant nation in the region. And they had felt the collective pain of generations of trauma and disconnection from their land. And yet when Jesus arrives on the scene, dreams of this kind of restored kingdom would perhaps return. Glory, the way that they had imagined. It's like the pro sports teams here in D.C. The Nats, the Caps, the Mystics in 2019, or the Commanders in the 80s and 90s when they were the Redskins. Some of you remember those days, right? When they were on top of the league. I remember, actually, I, when preparing for the sermon, the Redskins were my favorite team. I used to watch them uh, growing up with my dad. They were winning. Those championship teams and their stars may now be long gone. But some, if someone were to arrive, a coach, superstar players, who can turn the team around, then we can be reminded of the glory days. Maybe those glory days might return. Fan, stadiums are full, fans a frenzy, cars honking in the streets with flags waving. If a player could do that for our teams, maybe the glory days for D.C. sports might return. See, that's what's going on for the Jewish people. They were expecting a Messiah like that to restore their ideas of glory. They think they've got front row seats, Peter, James, and John, in the action. And so they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in this new era of glory that Jesus was going to come and bring. Once the G Messiah comes, that glory was going to return very shortly. But Jesus, the true Messiah, suggests a different timeline. He's not ascending to glory right away, and he's not bringing his people along at the same time. The disciples have been discussing this path to glory without suffering. They believe that their power and their privilege, maybe we might use different terms in our day, maybe we might use comfort or personal affirmation, that these things are the destiny of those who associate with Jesus. We see this instinct show up in Christian nationalism. We see it show up in this longing for affirmation of a chosen identity. 
You see, we put together a particular identity, whether it's a social one or whether it's a political one, and then we add our version of Jesus to it, our Messiah to it, and to bless it. And then we believe that glory is going to come along with comfort, along with affirmation, along with blessing. That's not the timeline that Jesus works on. Before glory for Jesus comes suffering. Before resurrection is the cross. Before life to the full is death. That's why the disciples don't get it when he says in verse 44, the Son of Man was to, is to be delivered into the hands of men. For the disciples, it's like error 404 when you're trying to load a website. This does not compute. This isn't what we expect. We live in this age between the now and the not yet. And though God's kingdom has come in the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago, it's not all here yet. And though Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived, the Messiah has begun his work in our midst, the work is not yet complete. We live in this world that is being renewed by God's gracious work in our midst, but it's still full of brokenness. So trusting Jesus, the Messiah, means that we can endure difficult things, but not without hope. Because we know where the timeline is going for those who have put their trust in Jesus. It's going to be glory. But that road to glory, even with Jesus the Messiah at your side, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. With Jesus the Messiah, this new timeline helps us become more patient, more hopeful, more trusting as a people, rather than impatient and anxious and controlling. Jesus the Messiah is with us. And Jesus' timeline means that we can pray for and we can work for just a more just world. But we are not controlled by anxiety. We do not find ourselves overwhelmed when things do not progress according to our expectations. With Jesus the Messiah, we may express our anger and injustice and brokenness in this world. That's a righteous response to those things. But we do not allow that anger to deform us into bitter or hard-hearted or self-righteous people, making us unable to live in the ways of Jesus, reflecting his character, unable to live at the speed of God's love. Seeing Jesus as the true Messiah leads to a new perspective of the kind of Messiah that we long for in our lives and in our world. And it leads to a new timeline that we live to, according to, and it leads, ultimately, to a new way of following. You know, chapter 9 ends with a few brief snapshots of, 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 of three ways of following Jesus, of three responses to Jesus. One man excitedly commits to following Jesus. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. But Jesus seems to know that this man follows Jesus for his own sake, not for Jesus' sake. He seeks to follow Jesus according to his ideas of glory and comfort and affirmation. And Jesus' response to him suggests that where he's going, few will actually find a home in because it is too costly for what they see as glory for them. 
in the final verses, Jesus invites two others to follow him. But they respond with excuses. Caring for family responsibilities. Honoring your family relationships. And these are all very reasonable responses. They're admirable, even in our day. But Jesus calls them out for what they are. He's not saying that you shouldn't do any of those things. He's not saying that you shouldn't care for your family. Because Jesus, on the cross, in the final moments, as he's about to die, he makes sure that his mother is cared for. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's comparing priorities that we say are important to us. And that these priorities might get in the way of a full commitment to Jesus and his ways. And especially when his ways invite us along a difficult path. For Jesus' disciples, before glory and blessing and comfort is this call to suffering. Jesus' disciples must walk the same road that Jesus walks. And let me be clear here. Life with Jesus isn't meant to be a sufferfest. You're not a more holy person or a better follower of Jesus because you suffer more than your neighbor. The point is that life with Jesus as the true Messiah means that suffering might be part of the journey. It doesn't mean we go out looking for more suffering in our lives, but we're not surprised when it comes our way. What does suffering look like? Suffering especially for Jesus. I think it can look different in different cultures. For first century Jews, this might look like persecution from family for one's commitment to Jesus. That's why Jesus uses these examples of family. Much like in our modern day cultures, if uh, someone whose family is Muslim and they convert to Christianity, that is a very, has serious implications on their family relationships and perhaps even on their personal safety. That's one kind of suffering. Here in the West, where religious tolerance is respected, suffering can be a little more subtle. Maybe suffering is sacrificing a promotion because you want to care for your family and support them. Maybe choosing to serve in missions abroad or serving for a nonprofit rather than pursue a normal job that builds up comfort and security is a form of suffering. Suffering in the wealth that is America might mean choosing a life of simplicity rather than a life of accumulating more and more things just because you can click buy it now. Suffering might mean less indulgent diets and a life with moments of solitude and silence rather than constant stimulation with music going on in the background with media and notifications that we must respond to. Maybe sacrificing for Jesus means we relate differently to, to our sexual desires than, the way that, than people around us. During the season of Lent, we remember that Jesus' path to glory, the cross, could not be avoided. And though Jesus expressed his own desire to avoid the suffering of the cross, he felt it deeply As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he longed for a glory that exceeded the glory of his own comfort and desires. He sought the glory of the living God, the one whom he called Father. Now, maybe you come to church today, and I hope you didn't 
don't walk away from this service thinking, well, I don't want more suffering in my life, so maybe Jesus isn't for me. Or maybe you're like, oh, yes, bring it on, God. Bring on the suffering. Point is not how much you suffer. The point is beholding God's glory, namely God's glory revealed in Jesus the Messiah. Because when we see the prize, the real prize, the true prize, we're willing to endure whatever it takes to get there, just like athletes who win championships. We're not willing, when we're not willing to sacrifice, then perhaps that's a sign that our hope for glory lies elsewhere than in God. Jesus wasn't just reframing his contemporaries' ideas of Messiah. He's doing that in real time with each one of us here in this room through the work of the Holy Spirit. Will you come to Jesus? Will you behold him as the true Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man? And allow all that he says, allow all that he does to give you a new perspective on who God is and what God is doing in the world and to live according to a new timeline and to live in a new way of following. And together with Jesus, we will enter into God's glory together.